Hi, everyone. Welcome back to what is now episode five of Cosmos Crusaders. Uh, so usually before every episode, we usually give a little bit of an update about something that's going on, either mine or Simi's life. But this episode, we honestly don't have much to tell you guys because Simi just had COVID and I just had my ACL surgery. So this all happened over the span of the past couple of weeks. So uh, if we both look tired during the episode, it is not because we thought Evan was boring or something like that. Evan was amazing and he was really awesome to have on. Uh, we've just been very tired recently, but we're both recovering and things are looking better now. So we're really happy that we were still able to get the episode out with you guys, um, out, out for you guys. And the guest for this week's episode, as I mentioned earlier, is Evan Nunez. Evan is an incoming fourth year PhD candidate at Caltech now. So I know Evan because he was my TA for a Galaxies class that I took during my senior year at Caltech. Um, he was an amazing TA, really helpful during the class. And the only interaction that I've had with him outside of that TA environment was at AAS this year, where we talked for 30 minutes um, just after one of the was after one of the talks that we went to. And Evans was really amazing. Um, even just from the short interaction that I had with him, he's a really cool guy and I could already tell that he has a lot of really cool ideas and is really passionate about both astronomy and also helping make this field a better space for people who deserve the chances in the field that currently that the field is in pride for them. So yeah, so we're really happy to have Evan on for this episode and we hope that you guys enjoy it. Um, Simi, what were your thoughts? Evan was so great. Oh, thanks for that great intro. Um, Evan was so great. We had such a good time interviewing him, and I think we both learned a lot from Evan. Uh, he's the first person that we've had on the show that actually went to community college. And so I think that was really insightful for Gokul and I. Um, we learned a lot about the actual like workings of community college and how beneficial it is in so many different ways. I think that one thing that Evan said that stood out was that actually 40% of people who are obtaining their degrees interacted with community college in some way and I never realized like how big the number actually was because it's still such a stigmatized pathway of obtaining your degree and it shouldn't be because um, of many different reasons that Evan talks about in the video but mainly because of the smaller class size and the increased quality of interactions between professors and students um, because at a bigger public institution, you can have up to like 1000 kids in your class, but at community college, they're roughly like 50 60 people or less. So you can build good networking relationships with your professors and really get to know them better, which provides for a lot of better opportunities in the latter half of your undergrad career. So obviously it's a great thing to consider if you're applying, um, if you're planning to apply soon to college but yeah he talks about so much stuff that we never would have even had to have thought of before so I think it was a really great interview and we're excited for all of you to see it definitely uh so I guess we'll just get right into it so thank you guys for tuning in and I hope you guys enjoy thank you we're extremely happy to have Evan Nunez on for our fifth episode uh short introduction Evan is a PhD candidate in the astrophysics department at Caltech. He got an Associates of Science for Transfers degree from El Camino College in LA. Uh, and then he ended up getting a Bachelor's of Science in Physics from Cal Poly Pomona. 
And he already has his master's in master physics from Caltech, which is why he is now a PhD candidate. So welcome to the show, Evan. Really happy to have you here. Nice. Thank you very much for the invite. Very happy to be here. It's uh, going to be nice. Good to see you again also. Yeah, good to see you, bro. Okay, well, we're just going to like jump right into it by talking about your research. So like, just so you know, I have no astrophysics background whatsoever. Um, could you try to like explain to me what you're currently working on? I know that like broadly you studied the evolution of galaxies, but like if you could give me some more details, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so within galaxies, so, so first, first off, galaxies are very complicated systems. And if we wanted to try and understand like all the microphysics that actually occur inside galaxies, we run out of computation time very, very, very quickly. So what we try and do is we try and look at broad relations between uh, galaxy properties and stuff that's easy to observe and try and extract as much physics from that as we can. And so with that in mind, what I'm curious about is um, all the material that's in between the stars, this is called the interstellar medium, um, and how that evolves with this other big uh, uh, amount of material that's surrounding a galaxy called the circumgalactic medium. And what I'm really curious in is basically how do those two systems of the same galaxy evolve over time? The reason this is important is because up until, you know, maybe the past decade or so, this, you know, this, this reservoir of gas that surrounds galaxies, the circumgalactic medium, we didn't think it really mattered that much. But it turns out if you want to have continuous uh, star formation in a galaxy. So in other words, if you want stars to continue to form in a galaxy, you need to have this reservoir of gas that's basically feeding into the galaxy. And so uh, at these distances, at these distant galaxies that we're observing, um, we don't really have a good answer for you know, what the properties of this big reservoir of gas looks like. So I'm basically gonna try and enlighten us on, um, uh, uh, on all the questions therein, basically. That's pretty interesting. Um, I know you talked um, a little bit about, well, in, the, in like the form you sent us before, that you're focusing on galaxies that are around a redshift of two or three, um, which is where star formation peaks. So I guess why are you interested in those sorts of galaxies in particular? Um, and also another question that I was wondering as a supernova person was how important studying supernova feedback is to your research and what are some of the mechanisms through which feedback enriches galaxies, the interstellar medium and certain galactic medium through the different processes that occur in it? Yeah, no, these are great questions. Um, I will start off with the latter question first, which is uh, supernovae are very, very important to uh, to my research. So in particular, what we're looking at is all of these, so there exists in the CJM of these galaxies, both metals and hydrogen. Um, hydrogen, as we know, the most abundant element in the universe, um, and it, ex it, ex it existed at the beginning of the universe. But for metals to be formed, and by metals in this context, I mean any, these are astrophysical metals, so it's not actually named correctly, but these are any elements that are more massive than helium. All the chemists would be very upset with me, but it wasn't me. I swear this, is, this was made before me. Nonetheless, these metals, have to get formed basically during the explosion or I'm sorry, sorry, in the cores of massive stars or uh, in the explosion of, uh, of, of stars in general. And so this means that if we do find metals that are in the CGM, they had to originate from somewhere and it's very likely that they got ejected um, as a result of a core collapse supernova explosion. Now, this becomes important for my work, not in necessarily the microphysics of it all, but like what specifically is happening, but what, do, what are the broad trends of all of, if, if you were to average over all of the core collapse supernovae that are occurring in a galaxy, what do you end up getting? Because as I mentioned before, you can basically have as many different 
you know, recipes and procedures that you want to describe this, but what we care about is a broad picture thing. So some of the important things that come there in is like, you know, what's the overall metal production that, uh, that you end up getting out of a series of core collapse supernovae in the galaxy? What's the average energy output of a single core collapse supernova? Then how do you average that over the entire galaxy? Because some of the things that, are, that we still are uncertain about is how does mass go from the inside of a galaxy to the outside. There are a lot of different ways that it can happen. You have to account for a lot of things like the, the pressure of the gas and if it's going into a, a, you know, a denser part of the CGM, for instance, or if it's, or if it's, or even if it's difficult for those metals to even leave the ISM in general, just because you already have the galaxy or the gravity of the galaxy holding in the material as well. So uh, all that to say, it's, it's pretty important. Um, and for, for my work at the moment, I don't need to understand it too, 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 too deeply just because we're in, we're on, I'm on the empirical side of like just trying to get all the numbers, all the data first, and then I'll try, I'm going to try and interpret it later. So you and I may end up having some conversations about, uh, about some of the finer details therein. And as you mentioned before, uh, we're studying these galaxies at a redshift between two or three. So uh, there are basically two different ways to think about redshift, either in terms of distance as well as what the age of the universe is. And for our context, I think it's gonna be a little bit easier to think about redshift as what the age of the universe is. So at redshift of two to three, the universe was about two to three billion years old. And it turns out that if you were to take a look at how stars are, if you were to look at all the galaxies at different epochs of the universe, uh, you end up finding that the majority of them, uh, that, that, you, that at this time in the universe, you get a peak in what's called the star formation rate density. So how many stars are forming per galaxy per volume of the universe and there are really a few reasons for why we care about this first off it's since it's the peak of of, of the star formation of the universe it's kind of cool to, to kind of see like this is it's sort of an extreme part of the universe right like this if we can understand what's going on here we can have we can, we can extend one of the extreme ends of what it would be like to be a star forming galaxy the second is that a lot of the very bright emission lines that these galaxies emit like the lyman alpha transition for instance uh, that's actually red shifted into the optical spectrum which of course is the same light that we can observe with so this means that it's very easy to observe with ground-based observatories that look in the optical so it's kind of nice from two respects first is that we can just see it easily using our telescopes that already exist but secondly, it's a very interesting part of the universe. Uh, it's probably the fundamental reason why, you know, the star formation rate is peaking at that time. Uh, there is basically a, a sweet spot in mass where you have the most efficient star formation that a galaxy can have. If you go below that, then the actual core collapse supernovae within that galaxy just stop star formation. If you go above that, the galaxy basically, basically gets quenched by um, the AGN that's going on in the center. And so if you can find a time in the universe where the majority of galaxies are at that mass, then you would expect to see that you would have a really high uh, uh, um, star formation rate at that time in the universe. And that's, and that's exactly what we see in this redshift um, two to three. So it's pretty spectacular. It's, it's, it's very interesting. I, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, yeah, I definitely look forward to having some conversations in the future, definitely, once you get into more some of the microphysics. I think that would be really cool to talk about. Um, so yeah, so now getting a little bit into your background, um, just a really general question. How did you know that you wanted to study astrophysics? So I was very lucky in that I knew at a very early age that I wanted to do astro. Um, I was about seven years old. 
uh, I was a nerd when I was a kid, but uh, like, like for instance, uh, I loved watching science documentaries on the Science Channel or on like Discovery Channel or whatever. Uh, there's a one, there's one formative memory that I have when my mom took me to a library in uh, El Segundo, uh, California. This is, you know, 15, 20 minutes away from my home, from my childhood home. And uh, I was tasked to check out a book. And so as soon as I got into the library, I just ran immediately for the solar systems or for the astronomy section. And then uh, at the time I was really interested in the solar system and uh, I picked up one book about Mars and one book about Venus. And at the time, you know, we didn't really know much about Mars at the time, like that, you know, that it could be potentially harboring life. So Mars was boring to me. Uh, and I really, really found Venus interesting. And the reason was because of this. Venus is perpetually enshrouded in clouds. And because as at the time, our only perception of what clouds meant was that, that there was water vapor and that, that were, you know, there were nice pristine conditions that are under that veil. So we thought that we were gonna see, by we, I mean, you know, the world and the scientific community thought that we were gonna find like these lush green, huge habitats on the surface of Venus, but we ended up finding hell. It was like, you, if you were to drop a block of lead on the Venetian surface, it would melt. So in terms of, flipping our perception of what we thought we knew, like Venus was the perfect example of that. And so I, was, I, just, I just remarked on that for a minute. I was like, man, the diversity in, the, in our own solar system is incredible. Imagine what we could find in elsewhere outside in the universe, in other solar systems, in other galaxies that contain billions of solar systems, right? And ever since then, I kind of been, uh, been hooked. Wow, I love that. That's such a nice way of like thinking about things. It's cool you had that light bulb moment kind of thing but um if you could like talk a little bit more about your community college experience and how you like how is studying physics there what kind of things were different than at your um at Cal Poly Pomona yeah definitely uh first and foremost I had an amazing time at community college um as a matter of fact if I'm being completely honest with you like the researcher that I am today the student that I am today and the person I am today uh all of that started when I was at community college like that was basically the, the inception of where of what I wanted to be most importantly I had amazing mentors there that all had time for me. You know, these were all folks that didn't have any research students. They were just teachers. They were hired to be teachers, so they were good at what they did. And as I'm sure we've all experienced at some point, that isn't necessarily the case at the uh, Fordy University. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can usually, you know, I'm sure all of us have had that experience before where you have a professor who is super well known in the field, maybe even famous, can't teach a class to save their life. So my experience when I at community college, it was fantastic because that wasn't at all the case. I mean, we had a bunch of big shots that were there who had really huge careers previously, but they really wanted to make a change and to be good teachers. What that means is that I was trained very, 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 very well as a physicist. And as a result, I think I got trained fairly well. Okay, I think I got trained very, very well as a physicist. I don't, I don't like to speak in absolutes. Uh, and I think as a result of that, I was also very well trained to be an, an astronomer. Some of the more formative experiences that I had at that, at my community college was, um, we actually had a pretty big astro program. So we had a purpose-built observatory for, for us astro students. We had a purpose-built planetarium. And we even had a class where um, my professor, you know, my, my advisor, because I'm his name is um, uh, Perry Hacking. Anybody ever wants to look him up? He wrote this, you know, dream grant to basically get a suite of 10, 10 inch, or excuse me, 10, 11 inch telescopes to make a class where students can literally take pictures of the heavens and that would literally be their grade. So like imagine that, right? Like me being a, a budding astronomer, uh, really, really wanting to be under the night sky. I literally could take a class where I, I got to take 
pictures of the objects that I didn't even know at the time would end up studying in greater detail later on. So it was, it was all I had to say, it was a fantastic experience. And of course, on top of that too, our program, our physics program was very, very rigorous such that when I got to Cal Poly Pomona, I actually got to relax a little bit more. Like, it was still difficult, but like, like our, our program, you know, we had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder because there's this very negative perception typically about community college students, right? Like, oh, only folks that failed only go there or, you know, nobody smart ever goes there. So my department was like, all right, bet, go ahead, we'll see. I bet you every single student leaves out here is going to compete. And sure enough, I think we do a pretty darn good job. And so um, it, was, it was great from like holistically, basically. Like I had some really good friends that I still got, that I still chat with like all the time. I actually went to visit a, a good friend two weeks ago. Uh, him and I had plenty of time to grow apart, but we just stayed so close because of those connections. So anyways, just to summarize, um, it was very impactful for my growth as a student, for my growth as a researcher. Uh, very impactful for my um, um, training as a physicist and more importantly as an astronomer and I also got some very good hands-on training of what it was like to actually do astronomy before I even got to university so I can't speak more highly about uh, El Camino College it was it was fantastic yeah I love that I love I love their mentality of having that having that chip on your shoulder and just being like all right we, we hear the noise so yep. what are we going to do about it? <laughs> That's well, awesome. me and coach. <laughs> Facts. So after XCC, you moved on to Cal Poly Pomona, where you studied physics. Uh, what was your experience like in the department there? And were you able to get involved in astro research there as well? Yeah, yeah. So my experience at Cal Poly Pomona was also fantastic. Um, it was actually a great continuation for me to go from El Camino to Cal Poly Pomona. And the biggest difference actually was what you just mentioned, which is the fact that yeah, I actually got to do astro research. So, so I was able to get one experience when I was in community college. Uh, I spent a summer in Wyoming, which was also very transformative. Uh, but in terms of like, you know, doing research during the academic year, that was my first time being able to do that. And so it was a great combination because at that point, uh, I finished all my lower division classes. So it was all stuff that I actually cared about now, right? So it was all my physics electives, all my astrophysics electives, which I'd never taken an astrophysics course before. Um, on top of that, I got to actually do, again, current cutting edge um, research. Uh, which you know, I already had a little bit of experience with, but it was a little bit different being on a long-term project. And it all sort of morphed together to be this incredibly productive and fun undergrad experience. I'm actually very thankful that I had it in two parts because I sort of got to get like the real heavy um, classes portion of it at community college. And then I got to have the ideal researcher experience at the at Capital at Pomona. One of the more important things that I think happened for me at CPP was uh, seeing what actual year-long research looked like because I got a very idealized version of it when I was uh, when I did that summer in Wyoming but it was just 10 weeks so being able to you know go in day in day out and you know figure out a schedule of like how I'm going to finish all my classes but also get this research that I actually care about done uh, was pretty important and, and honestly that I'm still doing that till this day as a matter of fact a lot of those habits that I instilled when I was an undergrad um, about doing research and balancing everything I'm still using till this day I mean this today is a fantastic example right like trying to set boundaries and you know not trying to run too much over time and you know getting tolerances to myself to make sure that okay I do over trying to go over by x amount of time or whatever uh, but one last thing really quick with that too is that the classes were also great I really enjoyed them again because that was my first time taking astro classes I've always enjoyed physics but like I, I enjoyed physics because I knew it would make me a better astrophysicist. So being actually being able to actually take astrophysics courses where everything that I had learned previously is now actually applied for the systems I actually care about. 
I was in heaven. I was such a tryhard. Oh my God. I was in office hours all the time just chatting about it because I found it so freaking interesting. You know what I mean? Uh, and I think that's also one of the times that I knew that like, yeah, I think I'm in the right field because this just, it's just, this stuff is just too cool. You know what I mean? So good experience at Cal Pipeline. I, I enjoyed it. It wasn't perfect, of course, but I, I, I enjoyed it. That's awesome. I'm glad you had such a good time in both places. But um, earlier you spoke a little bit about the like negative stigma that there is towards community college and the students that attend. Like, why do you think that that's so prevalent, not just in academia, but like in the general population? And how do you think we can like combat that? Yeah, so I think the stigma starts from the fact that there is no admissions process to the community college. If you want to go, you go. Um, and even more than that, the folks that typically speak the strongest about community college and have the loudest voices typically didn't spend much time there. They didn't actually, you know, give give it a good college try. That's uh, not probably that expression. They didn't. They didn't give it a good try, like they should. You know, I have no. I'm not, I'm not at all saying what a person should or shouldn't do. I just know that you know, for those of us who had experience like mine. Um, it seems like our voices seem to get washed away a little bit. And so I think that's that's one solution to this is to actually elevate the voices of folks who have interacted with the community college system. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure if, if you're both aware, but it turns out that 40% of all uh, bachelor's earning um, students have interacted with community college at some point. Like for instance, one of my uh, one of my peers here, we actually came in, we were admitted into the, in the same year. Uh, she took English classes the summer before she uh, went to undergrad right at, at a community college and so that means that yes she was a community college student she interacted with it and what that did for her was basically freed up an entire semester so she could do more research right i think that's a pretty fantastic outcome for her to have gone to community college for you know a summer and to now have an extra semester free and i think the second part with you know why i think it's so stigmatized is there are people who have bad experiences and i think because community colleges don't have a big degree that you can typically get from it, people don't find the reason to stick it out. So this actually gets to another reason why I think community college is so good is because you have time to explore. You can imagine if you're going to, you know, one of the most expensive colleges in, in the US, if you really don't like what you do by your like year and a half mark, or maybe let's say by your two year mark, you're going to finish that degree like you're going to find some way to stick it out even though you don't like it and you're going to have a degree that sure you you know it, it's, it's not that you'll have the degree but you're not you are not all going to go into it and enjoy the process where if you're at community college right you would have had a good year to figure out like eh, i don't really like this and i didn't break the bank so let me go try and you know go go a different route kind of again i think for the students that are a little unsure of what they want to do i think it's a fantastic place to be at and so anyways i think you know putting out the pros and cons a little bit about you know why community college is good um, in some instances compared to university is, is you know, I think a good way to put to, to, to try and uh, squash the stigma. I mean, one other, one other thing too, that I mentioned to my little cousin. Um, so he's, um, he was, he, he was choosing between going to uh, community college or university straight out of high school. And he asked me like, Evan, like, you know, what's the, what are the pros and cons and what should I do? I was like, first off, I can't tell you at all what to do. I, I, don't, I don't want that on my conscience. That's going to be you. You had to live with this decision. I can tell you what I, I can tell you what I know. Uh, one of the things that he found really pretty, really nice was the, the, the class size. So uh, in, at certain universities, especially public universities, you can get like a thousand students in the class. At community college, you're getting maybe 50, 
maybe 60 at a time. And so you actually have access to your, your professors. And for him, that was huge because he needed a lot of letters of recommendation and stuff. So anyways, I don't ramble anymore, but either way, that's, uh, I think that's what it is. It's just that, you know, community college doesn't have an exception in, in the admissions process. And um, people, the people who did have bad experiences didn't end up sticking it out because they didn't have a good motivation or reason to. And I think the way that we would, you know, elevate the, the voice to show that it's actually like a good, uh, uh, good option is folks like myself talking about, um, you know, my experience and how great it's been, but also to remind folks that, yeah, you can, a lot of people interact with the community college system, and it's been very, very helpful for those folks, uh, you know, myself included. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good message to put out there for the community, and a lot of students could definitely benefit from taking the route that you did. I think in a lot of places, it is definitely stigmatizing people to just decide to go to university just because they feel like that's a better option, but I think we have a really robust community college system here, especially in California. Especially in California. Yeah. Yes. So I feel like we should definitely take advantage of that as students and sort of put that message out there. So thanks for that. Um, so now transitioning a little bit into your current place. So you are a PhD candidate at Caltech. So what was the grad admissions process like for you? And why did you decide to go to Caltech for your PhD? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so the grad admissions process for me was, uh, oh, it was a long haul. Man, so I was very, very scared of not being admitted anywhere because um, I had some contemporaries before me, you know, they're about a year or two ahead of me uh, who were, in my opinion, much more qualified than I was to, to go to grad school. And they only got maybe like one offer. And thank goodness they got that one offer, of course. Like, I'm not disparaging that. But they also applied to like 12 or 13 places. So I was like, ooh, that means that I should probably apply to even more. And so that said, I applied to like 15 schools and it was difficult. I mean, for what it's worth, you know, usually you're just copying pasting your essay in into each uh and then changing like the final paragraph for each school for your personal statement but even like the, the research that you have to do for that final paragraph was it, it was a lot of work um and so much so that like you know my my junior i don't know my the beginning yet yeah, my 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 the beginning of my uh senior year of undergrad it's just a wash like it's just all a single day to me um and that would be my biggest piece of advice to folks is try and work is just try and start early. Um, and also to remember too that again, getting into grad school is very, very, very difficult. So to try and cast as wide of a net as you can. And that's actually why I applied to so many places too, because I had basically all schools that were that you know weren't very popular at all to the schools that everybody wanted to go to and basically everything in between. And I think that ended up resulting, you know, uh, I ended up I think that ended up working very, very well. You can imagine as soon as I got my first admittance, I was like, ah. Oh, Thank goodness. I was like, every, everywhere else could reject me. Don't even care. I had that one. That's all I need. Uh, but anyways, and then to, to, to answer the next question, you know, once I did get my offers, I was very, very thankful to have gotten, you know, a few good ones. Um, the reason I ended up coming to Caltech was really for three reasons. The first was the grad community. I knew that wherever I wanted to be at, I wanted to be around people that were good folks. Six years is a long time to be miserable. And the, the, con, the, the, the other part of the context here is that this is our mid-20s, right? Like our early to mid-20s. I would have hated going to a place where I was just wasting my you know, early to mid-20s away. So I wanted to make sure that there was a good community at the grad, at the, at the grad school, that all the grad students actually like each other. And you, can, you, can, you, you typically can figure it out very quickly. Like, you know, for instance, I knew like, like the grads here had a bunch of inside jokes that when I came here as a prospective student, I was like, what are they talking about? 
but as, as we know, you know, when folks have inside jokes, that means that they actually hang out and that they had a, an experience that was so funny that they're like, yo, oh, 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 that, you know, they actually kick it. And the same thing too, like, you know, you'll hear haphazardly in conversation with the grads, like, oh man, remember when we went to so-and-so last summer? Wow, that was a good time, man. Yeah, yo, show them the picture of such and such and such. Again, clues to actually show that these folks actually don't hate each other. And so the fact that I saw that, I was like, that's freaking amazing because that's what I want. The second was the number of advisors that I could see myself working with. Um, that was a huge thing for me. I'd seen way too many times students go to a place where there's only one advisor there that they would, that they could see themselves work with. And maybe the research fit just didn't work anymore. Or maybe the advisor advisee relationship wasn't there. Or maybe they just, or maybe the advisor was just a bad person, right? Uh, and they were kind of stuck because this is the only person that they could conceivably work with that did anything remotely close to what they did. So I did not want to find myself in that situation. And Caltech basically came in number one with the number of advisors that, uh, that I could have worked with. And the final consideration for me was location. I was, again, very, I was blessed by the universe. I, I say, I'm not, a very, I'm not a very religious man, but I do like that word blessed. I like I was blessed by the universe to be able to uh, consider multiple options near my hometown in LA. So I grew up in, um, in Carson and then Torrance. And my family's from Compton, but like, you know, we, it's, this, is all, this is all Southern California. And uh, I wanted to be close to home. I had my grandma, you know, basically if you were to go like to Pop Ram right now and go an hour in each cardinal direction, you're gonna get some one of my family members. Uh, and since I'm a pretty big family guy, it would've been really nice to, to have that. And also my girlfriend was here too, right? So like being able to stay close with her was, was a really big deal. So. Um, the combination of those three things um, resulted in me coming to Caltech out of the other options that I have. And thankfully, the, the, the decision, I, I still stand by. I still stand by the decision. Well, I'm really glad you can say that. And I'm glad everything kind of worked out the way that it was supposed to, it seems. <laughs> That's awesome. How have you been liking it there so far? It's been three years that you've been out there? Um, has anything stood out to you specifically? Yeah, that's a good question. I, so I, like I said, I've enjoyed the, the I've, I've enjoyed being here at a, at a high level. I, you know, in terms of my day-to-day -day and everything, things have been pretty, pretty darn solid. Um, the experience here hasn't been perfect. Um, you know, I mean, one of the worst things that I, that, that happened here actually happened to my advisor. He unfortunately did not get tenure um, in, uh, in the Astro department. And this is actually a pretty big deal, especially because Caltech does a pretty darn good job of getting of um, of giving worthy advisors uh, and professors tenure, and he didn't. And I think it was a, it was a completely political thing where because of all the other advocacy work that he was doing, um, two or three of the faculty that are currently here, the senior faculty just didn't like it. And now, of course, I must say that I'm I, you know I'm not sure if that's actually 100% true. Um, I don't you know, save my butt here just in case legal issues or whatever, but I'm pretty sure that we're fairly certain that that's what happened. So for me, that represents the very worst of my experience. Uh, the very best has been just the camaraderie, like everybody in my department, I would say, uh, well, not everybody, but I have at least 10 or 15 folks that were true allies to me as being the only black student in the department. I'm, th I'm thankfully I'm not the only minority in the department, uh, or I'm not the only racial minority in the, in the department, but I'm certainly the only black student. And I know that there are yeah, at least 10, 15 students I could call on if anything were to go down that they would be with me, like they would have my back and we would, you know, we would go to battle. Same thing with professors. I have at least, you know, I think Caltech has 12 faculty members and I could think of at least seven or eight that would actually be down to ride with me if anything stupid were to happen. Um, and the fact that nothing has happened already goes to show that, yeah, things are much better than they were before. I mean, as a matter of fact, when I was, when I wasn't considering coming to Caltech because of its, of its reputation, 
I think Caltech's reputation perceives itself as being a very bad, negative, hor you know, harmful, bad place to be. Uh, thankfully, um, you know, as recently as maybe five years to a decade ago, um, it, it has changed and it's changed for the better. I think another part of my the experience that's been fantastic has been uh, the community that I have been able to build outside of Astro. So specifically through BSEC, the Black Scientists and Engineers at Caltech. Um, we basically try and foster all of the uh, um, the black students, black staff, and black grads, undergrads, and grads uh, together uh, to basically make a sense of community. We like we also outreach to the Pasadena area as well, and that's been a very fruitful uh, endeavor because we get to basically intersect both, or we get to have intersections of both activism as well as just the social aspect of it, and just just hanging out with each other. And it's nice. Now, seeing another familiar face that's like not in your department, especially if that face is unrepresented in your department, you know what I'm saying? Um, so overall, it's been it's been pretty good. But it, you know, I'd be remiss to say that there haven't been some, you know, some shaky parts of the experience. And um, one thing that I wanted to add to that as well is, uh, and this is true in in every place. Every department has its problems. It's just what are you willing to deal with? Um, and that's and it's a personal thing. And for me, all the issues that I knew of coming in here, I was like, yeah, I can deal with that. And thank goodness I was right. It's fine, <laughs> you know. Wow, I actually, I didn't know you were the only black student in the department. That's pretty wild because the department's pretty big. Um, yeah, and I'm, I was really hard, I was really sorry to hear about Evan not getting tenure. He was, he was an amazing professor. He taught my first astro class when I was wow. an undergrad there. So he was a big reason for why I'm sort of still in this place. So Evan, if you're watching this, I appreciate you. <laughs> I hope you're doing good. For real, for real. Yeah, he's at Notre Dame now, right? Yes, he's at Notre Dame, um, fully tenured, everything. You know, they that department actually cared uh, to keep him on, and yeah, he's 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 doing he's doing good. I'm actually gonna visit him uh, next week, so that'll, oh, or, nice. I'm sorry, not next, week, uh, next month. So it'll be done. It'll be cool. nice. Yeah, tell him I say hi. Definitely. Uh, so yeah, so you were talking a little bit about BSEC, um, and I know a little bit about BSEC, no, probably not from the best perspective because my. Mm -hmm. Cause I was undergrad there and yeah. there are so little black undergraduates at Caltech. Like it's almost comical. And a couple of my friends were black and they would tell me that BSEC would ask them to come to events. And they just felt sort of just like sad when they went because there was just so little undergraduates that were black and they just sort of felt almost lonely um, in that environment. I know it's very different for um, from the graduate perspective, but that's, that's all I know about BSEC other than um, when I was towards my senior year and then when I got into my first year of graduate school, I heard about all the work that you guys were doing about renaming the buildings on campus. And this had already started when I was about to leave, but that was when COVID happened and I wasn't even on campus. But I was hearing about the stuff about how a lot of the buildings, which I had, I had no idea about this before, um, they were named after eugenicists, um, like Milliken Library and I think a couple others, um, Chandler Cafe, yeah, Chandler Cafe and things like that. Um, so yeah, and you guys were actually able to change the names of many of those buildings, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. So I know we talked about it a little bit at AAS, but I thought that sharing sort of how you did that and the steps that you guys took to do that with the community would be impactful since it was a really huge step in the right direction for Caltech. It took a lot of effort on your guys' parts for sure, just looking at it from the outside. So I just wanted to highlight this and give you a space to sort of talk about how that whole process was. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, uh, all praise goes to uh, my 
Uh, the other two BSEC cabinet members, oh, there's actually four of us, but I'm going to highlight these two. Other names are Jean Badru and um, Danny Mukasa. What they did was uh, uh, we basically tried to leverage the uproar and the protests surrounding the George Floyd murder. I'm being very pointed with that term. It was a murder. Um, because at that point, there was a lot of, you know, really good lip service and a lot of really good, you know, we care, we care, we care. And for what it's worth, a lot of folks really were keyed in and tuned um, to, you know, the Black struggle and the Black plight. And what we ended up doing was, um, and really, again, the, a huge amount of the work was done by Gene and, and Daniel was basically writing up this document and holding a town hall uh, that basically called to action the different things that Caltech could do uh, to fulfill their, their mission statement. So Caltech, I'm not even kidding you, said that we care about diversity in their uh, opening, you know, admission statement uh, for the university. Now, we're scientists, right? Like we can look at the numbers and, and clearly see that there's a huge disparity between the people of color at Caltech and the broader LA area, right? One would expect that if you're at a university that really does believe in meritocracy, or you know, this idea that your merit is what gets you places, then you would expect to see uh, close to the national population or the national percentages of underrepresented groups within the within the, the school. So in particular, we would expect to see 13% of the of Caltech to be black. We saw less than 1%. As a matter of fact, when uh, when when I was admitted in 2019 to Caltech, it was four of us total, excuse me, excuse me, five of us total out of all the graduates that were admitted. We can let that sink in for a second. There are five of us who were admitted as black grads out of total, uh, in, in total for that, that year. So what we did was we brought that to the, to the, to the folks' attention and was like, hey, you're full of it. You know, you're full of it. Do you actually believe what, you, what you're saying? And if you do, then you can take a look at these different steps uh, to outline things that are important that, that need to be changed to actually show that you care. And one of those that was picked up, uh, and this was, and what was, was the, 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 the renaming of the buildings. Now, thankfully, we already had a lot of momentum pushing this because uh, campuses like Princeton, Berkeley, so on and so forth, have already been doing this. And in our case, we were just like, let's continue to follow this trend because these people were very obviously against folks like myself doing science, right? So just to be clear, so we all know, um, eugenics was the idea that uh, you can clean the human bloodline just like we would do with plants. So like this idea of artificial selection. Uh, and this is great, right? If you can do this for diseases. Uh, but the question was, well, but this was what, what they're trying to do this for people, right? And the question is, well, who deserves to live on? And in their case, it was typically white Anglo-Saxon uh, people who, who own property. And if you were poor or a person of color or mentally ill, for instance, um, then you were, you were seen as, what's the word, undesirable? Not undesirable. Um, I can't remember the term, but either way, that's what that was. And uh, Milliken and Chandler, who were, who were just two of the prominent eugenicists, uh, they ran what's called the Human Betterment Foundation. And these were the folks who basically changed uh, California policy to make forced sterilization legal. And, um, and uh, who also made it that such that uh, uh, it was, you know, they tried to frame it as, as being a good thing. And so as a result, we were like, yeah, we should probably rechange that name. Uh, we should probably change that name because these people like, really tried to leverage the fact that they were Caltech professors, that they were these huge smart people to try and convince the public that these pseudoscientific beliefs were rooted in reality. Because remember, this is nothing new, right? Like this, there have been, there have been so many studies that have tried to show scientifically that folks from Africa are somehow, or that, that are of African descent, 
are somehow lesser than of their white, typically European counterparts. And it, we have found over and over and over again that there is no difference between any of us, except you know where we come from. And that's it. We all have the same human hardware. So anyways, sorry, just to back up. Uh, and so what we basically did was, was again, we pitched this to the, uh, um, to the campus. And since there was already so much momentum, it got picked up by the president and all the other folks. There was a committee that was formed where one of us was on that, um, on that committee. And unfortunately, she ended up leaving. She got a little bit disillusioned with the process, um, which is understandable. Like, you know, I, I can't judge her. But thankfully, even, even with her leaving, uh, there were a lot of other allies who went and spoke during these meetings for this naming task force that ended up resulting in the changing of the name of the building. My whole thing was most recently, I don't like to change things without talking about why. And I thought it would be a huge disservice to this era and all these people who are forced to be sterilized if we just change the names without talking about anything. And so I brought this up to the president at some point, to President Caltech, uh, Tom, Tom Baum, Tom Rosenbaum, um, that we should put you know, some sort of plaque to commemorate and talk about like why this was done and why this was necessary. And thankfully that's gonna be installed um, once Caltech Hall is officially you know, renamed Caltech Hall. Because again, my whole thing is let's actually learn from history, right? An extreme example of this is like keeping up Auschwitz, right? And like how having that as a standing memorial as to, why, as to how this should never happen again. And I thought that in our own way, and in a much less extreme example, in our way with, um, with Caltech, keeping up at least this little plaque to say, hey, let's not forget, here's the reason why. This isn't us just being on some wokeity woke, you know, turn stable to want to change that. These are actually things that happen that we need to be aware of that the Caltech community was a part of. So anyways, long story for, for you know, somewhat short answer, but that's what it was. It was advocacy on our part, trying to basically leverage and be very understanding of the times. You know, we knew people were listening. So it's like, okay, now we have everybody's attention. And of course, seeing it through and, and honestly, just having the administration listen to us for whatever their motivations were. I'm pretty sure their motivations weren't the same as ours, but regardless, we got the name, we got the building to rename. And there have been a few other things that have happened as a, as a result of, of that work. So I'm uh, fairly happy with it, considering. Yeah, that's also amazing. Like that must have been really a hard thing to do, but it's glad I'm glad that like it worked out in the end and you're getting some like vision, like what's visible changes. Um, Concrete actions are being done. Yes, exactly. That, I applaud you guys. Um, talking a little bit more about like DEI at Caltech, what's it like to be a part of a committee that spans so many different departments? Like for Gok at UMD, um, his DEI committee is just within the astro department, but for you, I believe it's like physics, math, and astronomy. Um, I know you're the only Black person in the astro department, but like amongst all of those, maybe there's some sort of differences um, when you're working with a bunch of different departments rather than just your own. So how, how does that like work, <laughs> I guess? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good question. Uh, what I found to be the most interesting difference was that Typically, Astro is a little bit more ahead in terms of their DEI work compared to uh, other divisions, or other departments. So, for instance, the physicists uh, were very, very, very against, you know, de-emphasizing the, the physics GRE, for instance, right? They had these very grand notions of, well, if you're a good physicist, blah, 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 even though, as we know, there's no correlation at all, for instance, with your with you being a good researcher or even having good grades, actually, and your GRE score. Um, so that was one thing that, that I found kind of interesting was that, you know, there are a lot of things that we sort of had to catch each other up on. Um, but the second is that it was a little bit, you know, sometimes it's a little bit difficult because some things that would work well in Astro just wouldn't work very well in other departments. So like in, in general, all 
physics, physics and math and astronomy have like undergraduate conferences that students can go to. They were a lot more numerous, I think, in in astronomy than they are uh, in physics and math, for instance. So one of the, you know, because I was like one of the recommendations. So so just to give a broad take, the task force I was a part of, we were basically tasked with writing a document that gave recommendations to the PMA division to again try and actually make the PMA more uh, more equitable, diverse, uh, and inclusive. Um, and so, and one of the item uh, one of the item lines in there is to actually have a presence at these uh, minority serving um, conferences. And so, there are a lot of STEM conferences that, uh, like SACNAS, for instance, or um, NSB or NSBP, that uh, that exist for again physicists and you know STEM folks in general. But it's hard to do that for math. So we had to see, sort of be a little bit inventive with that. I actually don't know what the I still don't know what the solution for that was, but. Uh, you know, presumably there is some conference that the mathematicians know about that we'll be able to send money there because what we what we basically did was like, here's money set aside for a compendium or a, a group of students to go and represent Caltech to talk to the students. And because of that, because it was fairly universal, so long as there exists some conference in math that does that, then that's, uh, you know, worthy way for that to work out. So it was just really small things like that, um, that we sort of had to, had to, had to navigate and, and maneuver around. Thankfully, everybody was fairly receptive. I mean, in general, you know, people who, who wanted to serve on the committee were already in a different, you know, in a much better mindset than those that didn't. So uh, it was a lot of really good, productive conversations, I think. A little bit slow going sometimes, especially because, you know, everybody's all busy, um, but we ended up making it. And uh, I'm not too sure what the status of it is right now. Oh, no, I think, I think we've, we've already shipped it to, um, to, the, uh, to the executive officer of, of PMA um, to, um, to get some of these things institutionalized, like written into the uh, into the budget, so it's coming together. But yeah, it was just those small things that made it a little bit difficult. Difficult. <laughs> That's still great to hear. I mean, small steps can really go a long way at the end of things. So. That's awesome. I really applaud all the work that you do. It must be so tiring to do all this like DEI stuff on top of your PhD stuff, but I think it's really important and someone someone's got to do it. That's right. um, but I was just thinking like you as an as an intersectional person, um, does it ever get like kind of complicated trying to like focus on different parts of your identity or like do you ever feel like you're kind of like prioritizing one part of yourself over another? Does this like impact how you feel about the work that you're doing at all? Mm, that's a good question. Um, the majority of the time, no, thank goodness. Um, and sometimes, yes. Yeah. So in particular, um, you know, I, I get a little bit jealous sometimes of my uh, counterparts who don't have to think about all the DA, all the DEI work because they're already very well represented in uh, in, in the department, uh, or at least in Astro as a broader uh, as a broader community. Because um, it would be nice sometimes if I could just you know not think about it because I typically because you know with, with a lot of this stuff with a lot of this work you have to set pretty strong boundaries. So for instance, I don't do any DEI work unless it's a scheduled meeting or, uh, or unless it's after my work hours. And so as you, you can already imagine that I kind of run into some issues sometimes because of how much extra work could be accompanied to, you know, to the different tasks that are going on. Most of the time it's fun stuff, but like setting up a beach day, like we're going on a beach day in BSEC on Sunday, right? Like that's fine. That's all dope. But other things are a little bit more you know, on the nose and kind of heavy that you just don't want to necessarily think about all the time. It's only really those instances 
that I'm like, it would be kind of nice like to not have this extra burden that was unfairly placed on my shoulders. And not just me, of course, but I mean like other folks were also doing this, uh, the same work from minoritized groups. What I'm very thankful though, and I have this very distinct memory is that I didn't lose my identity in, in any part of the process. Um, I, I remember uh, specifically, I, I, I was, I got a cool little internship at JPL in uh, 2015. Wow, I'm dating myself now. That's insane, old man. It's a blessing though, I'm very, very thankful. Uh, as, my, as my grandmother said, growing old is a privilege denied by many. Or sorry, sorry, sorry. Growing old is a privilege denied to many. So let that stick in. Anyways, I remember uh, uh, this was the year that uh, Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly was released. And as I mentioned before, you know, I was, uh, I was interning at JPL. I was living in Torrance. That, you know, for those that don't know, the geographics is about an hour long drive or whatever uh, from Torrance to JPL. And I was just bumping, right? Like just bumping as, as loud as I could. Even when I pulled up like the security officer in the bending, I was bumping at it. I turned it down, of course. I was like, hello, how you doing? Oh, hey, how are you? And I was like, yeah, I'm here for an internship. Here's my ID or whatever. Or uh, yeah, this is my first day, you know, keep pointing where to go. Like, yeah, absolutely. Come on in, whatever. Blah, blah, blah. And I left, turned that right back up. And I felt so dope to me because like, I remember, you know, the, 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 the prestige and like how, highly I looked up to JPL and I was like but I never really saw people like me right like think I got to see like Neil deGrasse Tyson growing up and stuff like that but in terms of like who are actually like sitting in those seats in the control room of JPL I mean sure it was a guy with the mohawk he was super cool but like again black student afro with the beard nothing like that so it felt so dope to like roll up and be like I didn't lose any part of that while going to this first internship and thankfully you know it was very well received and even throughout the other parts of academia, like I've been pretty solid. I mean, you know, one, one thing to keep in mind too, though, is that I, I'm pretty well accustomed to navigating predominantly white spaces and, and also predominantly non-black spaces. So, um, you know, some could say that I speak like it, uh, although I'll be honest with you, like I've always spoken like this, um, you know, I keep it real when I need to, but my mom taught me like to speak concisely and properly. So like, from that respect, I don't really understand it. And I'm very thankful I didn't have to sacrifice that. But anyways, I'm sorry, I'm rambling again. Long story short, um, sometimes I do, but the majority of the time I don't. I had this very, and I'm, and I'm very thankful that like the true like deep parts of who I truly am have never even gotten close to being changed. Like first didn't like me for the way I spoke or my music. F them, whatever. Don't mean none to me. I have way too much going for me right now to be concerned with, with small things uh, such as that. And as you can probably tell, I'm not a rude person at all. It's just, there are just certain things that are worth tolerating and some things that aren't. So you can keep me away with that energy. I, like I'm straight, I don't, need, I don't need none of that. You know what I mean? Keep it real. Yeah, that's, that's keeping, it, keeping it a buck for real. Uh, mm -hmm. I love hearing that. I'm just imagining, because <laughs> I also I also entered at JPL one summer. I'm just imagining pulling up, pulling up the security gate, pimping oh. TPAP. <laughs> oh, <bump>. Fire. <laughs> I think the track that was played on too was uh, Hill Politics. So it was like, oh, it was, that's, that song is fire. Wow. Yeah. Like it was in there. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that was, that was all really interesting for me to hear, um, especially about the things that you guys are doing on the graduate level, because as undergrads, a lot of this was happening while I was still there, um, which is like crazy for me to think about because um, I guess a lot of the undergrads just aren't very tuned in um because you guys have a lot to do and a lot of work <laughs> yeah that's true yeah we do have a bunch of work and and yeah so I guess I guess now I wish that I could have told my friends about all the great stuff that you guys are doing because 
um, I don't know. I think, I guess maybe you guys reaching the undergraduate community could really actually benefit the undergraduate community. Um, I don't know. I don't know how you guys can do that because it's so hard to be an undergrad at Caltech. Um, but yeah, so just like with conversations that I've had with my friends, like, I, I guess I wish that they were more in tune with BSEC and I think it would have really helped them during your time there. So you guys are doing amazing I mean, stuff. So, so we are, we have, uh, we're trying to get a undergrad BSEC leadership um, instituted so that, because a lot of the issues that we, that we found out now is that a lot of the meeting times that we had uh, for BSEC conflict like with the Monday pizza lunches, for instance, or like with the pizza lunches or whatever. Um, and then the inverse of that is that, but we, all, but we as grads don't like to really meet after like five or 6 p.m. So what we're trying to do is set up events that accommodate both of our timing schedules, basically, because um, I think if the Black students at, the, specifically the Black undergrads, could be able to talk with folks who are at the next level, uh, um, or, or at the very least who have gone through what they've experienced, then that could, al that could already be a really good um, you know, support system for, for them to lean on. And so we, we, we were actively working on that. And we're very, very, very well aware that this has been an issue that we're trying to figure out for a while. Um, and yeah, we're, and, we're, and we're working on it. Definitely keep, uh, keep bringing this up though, keep us accountable because you know, since, we, since, since our lives are so separate, it can be easy for this to kind of slip on the wayside. But you know, one of the things that we've been doing for instance is like opening up all of our activities, which has always been the case. We've always kept our activities open, but we've always struck, we're now trying to point them specifically to the undergrads, like this beach day that I mentioned on Sunday, like we're actively reaching out like, hey, come through, come through. And like continuing, you know, continue to send reminders, yo, slide, come through, slide. Show, you know, show up, slink up, whatever. Because um, I think that's also the hard part too. Is like, you know, since y'all have so much going on and have, it kind of gets buried in the uh, by the wayside and stuff. So we're trying. And then of course, if you have any other suggestions too, to, you know, ways for us to, to reach the undergrads a little bit better, we are, we are all ears. We would love to, we would love that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll, I'll probably just, I'll probably just um, give you like the contact info for some of my friends and you guys, and you should talk to them. And they can tell you about their experiences and how they think that it could have been better for them. So that would be really, really helpful for the community, I think. Um, yeah, making Caltech a better place. It's already an amazing place to do science, but making it a better place for underrepresented groups is something that I've been thinking about a lot um, because I eventually, hopefully, want to go back there one day. So, so I don't know. We'll see if that so, happens. But <laughs> fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, yeah. Fingers crossed. Um, so yeah, so now transitioning a little bit into your future, um, now that you're a PhD candidate, um, you're probably starting to at least think about maybe even start working on your thesis. Mm -hmm. So how do you envision your current research transitioning into your eventual thesis? Yeah, so funny enough, actually, uh, the current research that I mentioned before, that basically is my thesis. So uh, I, one thing that I forgot to mention is that the way that, the way that I'm doing this work, again, it, it just as a quick reminder, we're trying to um, uh, understand how Galaxy galaxies evolve by understanding their innards, the innards of the galaxy, as well as the material that's directly outside of it. Um, there's a very particular configuration of galaxies that we need um, for this work to be, uh, to, to, to do this work, basically. And, and, and some, in, in some respect, it's basically a new type of galaxy that, uh, that have been very, very difficult to find. Um, and so uh, the way that I'm envisioning my, my research, basically, you know, going forward uh, currently in my thesis is to just find more of these Right, and um, currently there are only maybe I think the last time I counted there are only about five galaxies that we know of that are you know that are in this particular configuration where we can study both the innards and the outsides um, in a detailed sense. And so I'm planning on increasing that sample size to 20, 25, 
um, by the by the end of my career. Uh, or sorry, by, by the end of my grad career. Yeah, hopefully that number is going to go way 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 up by the end of my uh, actual uh, astro career. But I'll be able that's but that's that's going to be it. And so it's it's going to be basically a pretty seamless transition. Um, since I'm already past candidacy, I've already pitched my thesis to my committee, and they're like, "Yeah, this looks good. Go ahead and do it." So I got the thumbs up. Uh, now it's just a matter of uh, executing. And so what this is really going to take is uh, getting a lot more data. Of course, um, even though we have a lot of data, there's, you know, since my work is very niche, as, as all research topics are, uh, yeah, the more, the more, the merrier. And then, um, you know, hopefully be able to get maybe two or three papers out by the time I graduate. Eh, we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. Maybe more, maybe not. I don't know. Well, either way, I'm going to get the work out. But uh, it should be a pretty seamless transition. And um, I'm excited for it. And again, and again, what's, what's really cool is that it's going to give us it's going to enlighten us on questions that we just weren't able to answer before when it comes to, again, these, these metals and, these, and, this, and this mass that's, uh, that has to originate from the galaxy itself and then stream outwards and stuff. Because there are a lot of processes that are in that I'm, that I'm mentioning or that, I've, that I'm kind of glossing over because we just don't have the, both the theoretical or the empirical backing for it. Um, you know, there are a lot of intermediate steps between when the mass goes from here to here. And it's a non-trivial exercise to figure out uh, what has happened. And one of the things that I, that I actually was talking about to a postdoc earlier, her name was Arena, is, uh, you know, are there any observational signatures? Like, can we, like, what, what's something we can observe that would be like a telltale sign that, you know, this galaxy went through X process or that, you know, this galaxy is dominated by this type of supernova or whatever the case may be. And the short answer was, I don't know. And so I'll figure that out at some point, <laughs> but it's all fine. Well, we're so excited for you. Good luck with all the rest of your research. And I hope you can get some papers out. That'd be super exciting. <laughs> um, but I heard you were part of CalBridge. So um, I don't really know much about that. I'd love to hear more about like its main goals, um, how you kind of see it evolving in the future and how you plan to like use your experience through the program to like support underrepresented students in their transfer experience. Yeah, yeah. So CalBridge is uh, a it's a program that's uh, in California. Uh, it's and the and the idea here is to take undergraduate students that are in the California State University system and get them into graduate programs at the UC system and the University of California. So for those that are unfamiliar. The CSU system or the Cal State University system, these are typically teaching institutions uh, that, uh, you know, hands-on action is what, they, is what they're known for. And then uh, research is sort of like the secondary. And then for the UC system, you know, UCLA, UC Berkeley, whatever, these are all R1 research institutions. So that's always been the number one goal. So typically it's hard or like that connection to go from the CSU to the UC is typically difficult because in order to get in grad school, you need to have research experience. And so the CalBridge program is trying to basically do that supplement to get the uh, under, undergrads um, at the CSU who want to go to grad school into grad school. The program specifically targets um, students who are underrepresented in STEM, so specifically Black and Brown, Indigenous people of color, uh, gender minorities, whether those uh, being non-binary, part of the LGBTQ plus, plus community, as well as those that are, uh, that are coming from non- uh, traditional socioeconomic status background. So specifically uh, those who are, um, you know, below or, or near the poverty line, regardless of their uh, other ethnicity or race or anything like that. And the way the program supports its students, uh, I think is another, is, is, the, is the reason why I ended up 
wanting to go to, to the Cal States compared to the UCs for it. Uh, you get a fantastic scholarship such that if you're working one job, you should get enough money that you don't have to work anymore. And if you're working two jobs and you have to work, you know, you should only have to work one. The second is that uh, there's a bunch of professional development workshops like, you know, what does a CV look like? Why is it important? Why does networking matter? Um, writing a personal statement. What are grad schools actually looking for in your application? Um, the third, of course, is just the big, broad network that Calbridge has, like all the different campuses and satellites and stuff like that. And the fourth is um, mentoring. So you have both a UC mentor who should be, you know, who's there to answer all of your UC questions and, you know, see what it's like to get in grad school. And then the Cal States, uh, that's for all of your classes and stuff. So uh, it's a fantastic and very comprehensive program. And the way that I'm supporting it right now is I'm actually on the alumni council for the program. So I'm basically helping make decisions as to like, what things need to be changed such that students going to the program have as seamless of a transition as they possibly can uh, with the program to grad school. So, you know, like, like recently we were having conversations about the Calbridge contract. So every student has to sign a contract that details things that are going to be required of them. So like you have to keep, you have to be above a certain GPA, you have to um, meet with your advisor this many times or whatever the case may be. And so, uh, we're basically just trying to fine tune all those things to make it such that the students who go through the program have as good of a chance as they can to get into um, into grad school, and that's how I see it. And, and then, and then, you know, after we go through so many different years of iteration through this, then the program should be just ideal for students like myself who really wanted to go to grad school, but also didn't want to break the bank and who wanted to have a personal uh, journey at the at the undergrad level. So it's exciting. I think uh, I think actually Calbridge was just awarded. Uh, I think we are now written to the state budget which was a huge, I, I, I'll be honest, I didn't know if it was gonna happen like that because that's a really big thing to have. So uh, this means that we should be funded for the foreseeable future. Fingers crossed, knock on wood. <laughs> wow, that, that's amazing, bro. Um, yeah, I know a little bit about Calbridge because uh, one of my good friends from Maryland, I'm sure you know her, Jordan Ely. Yeah, Jordan uh, Ely, shout yeah. out to yes. Yeah, she does a lot of work with Calbridge, so she told me a little bit about it. Um, so you guys are doing amazing stuff. Um, so thank you for everything. Um, definitely making the field a better place for the next generation. So I think everyone should show you guys some appreciation. Um, so now uh, this is one of our last questions and kind of a fun one, I guess. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Would you ideally like to stay in academia? Do you want to be a research scientist, or go into industry? Where do you sort of see yourself? Yeah, I see myself as a astrophysics professor at probably at the California State University system. I would love to teach at a place like Cal Poly Pomona, specifically because I want to be able to focus on the undergrads and actually like take care. Because I, and the reason for that is because I would not be sitting here if it wasn't for the amazing mentors that I had. I mean, things that I didn't even think to consider. They were like, yeah, we should probably go worry about this. I was like, no, I didn't even know that existed opportunities that I didn't even know exist. Like, hey, you should, you should apply to the scholarship. It's, you know, thousand, two thousand dollars or whatever. Sure, I'll take it. Um, and also during the classes too, right? I'm a, I'm a fairly slow learner. I take, I have to take a lot of time. Like the way that I say it is that if my closest friends take an hour, it's going to take me about a factor of two longer to answer the question. So it takes the homie two hours, it'll take me four. Um, and all my professors that I had were super understanding about that um, and were willing to just have me sit in their office for like, two hours to go over a problem that should take me 45 minutes or whatever. And so I said that to say that by, as a result of that, um, I really want to, to be able to take, to, to, to be able to be that 
pillar for my students that I that I had when I was coming up. And so being at the CSU for me would be ideal compared to the UC because for the you know for the UCs you'd have grad students and postdocs as well as undergrads. And um, although that would be fun, I would prefer to stick to the undergrads. It's kind of like an ideal situation in the sense that I'll still be able to do research and still be able to do research with students, but my teaching will actually matter. As a matter of fact, I mean I'm not sure if you know this, but at some R1 institutions, if you teach too well or if you spend too much time on your teaching, like it's frowned upon. As a matter of fact, I think that's what happened with Evan, because I'm sure Goku, you can you can corroborate this. Fan, Evan was a fantastic teacher. And as a reminder, this is my, my advisor who didn't get tenure. He's a fantastic teacher, amazing, but didn't get it. So I don't want that to happen. I want to be able to be a good teacher, as well as a good researcher, as well as a good uh, mentor for my students. So astrophysics professor at CSU, we'll see. Oh, that'd be nice, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Once again, knock on wood. I love that. I know it'll work out for you. You seem very determined and like a great fit for that position. So no worries at all. You don't even need to cross your fingers. <laughs> um, I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. We're just going to go ahead and close off now with some quick hitters. Um, Gok and I are going to take turns asking you these. So for, we're going to start off with who are your top five NBA players right now or top three if <laughs> five is <Yeah>. hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, it's gonna be such a bad list. Uh, Giannis, um, Steph, Clay. Clay was hilarious when he was off that handy when he was at, at the, the celebration. Hilarious. Well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. It was, it was a funny video. Um, LeBron and Kyrie. You just say, I feel like you're just saying Kyrie because you're going to come to the Lakers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, fingers crossed. Well, a man can wish. A man can hope. A man can hope. Solid list. Solid list. Uh, top five musical artists. Earl Sweatshirt, who's rapping hip hop. Uh, King Cruel, uh, indie alternative type stuff. Um, Mike, who's uh, another rapper. Gotta say Kendrick, just off the principle. Shout out Compton, shout out to my fam. And then, oh gosh, why can't I think of the last one? I'll leave it at four, I'll leave it at four. Okay, we'll take it. Solid list. Um, what are your three favorite things about LA? First is that you could do so much that you can like legitimately surf and ski in the same day. Big Bear is about a two hour drive from here. And from, from Big Bear, the beach is about a two and a half hour drive. So you can actually do that. Uh, the second is all the restaurants. Um, if there's ever a food craving that you have, you will be able to find it somewhere and it's gonna be good. And then um, third is that, oh, artists always come here. Like if you have a favorite artist, a favorite musician, favorite whoever, they'll be here at some point. You may have to wait a little bit, but they're, they're gonna slide through, push up, push up. <laughs> That's true. I've been to definitely the most concerts uh, when I was in LA. So everyone always comes through there. Um, okay, last one we got is your three favorite facts about galaxies. Mm -hmm. First fact is that depending on the mass of the galaxy, you can have up to you know ten to hundred billion stars within that galaxy. And I always like to think about like you know the exoplanet folks and just how much potential there is for life in each individual galaxy. Like I, I literally have stayed up nights thinking about like, I wonder if there's another life form in the universe thinking about me right now, of, them, of, of, think, of me thinking about them, thinking about them, thinking about me. I don't know, I find that funny. 
The second is that even though galaxies are very messy, there is some order to them. So as I mentioned before, at a very high, you know, at, at, at a microphysics level, every galaxy is incredibly unique. But if you were to step up and like average over all the properties, they all, they all fall, follow pretty, or the majority of them follow uh, um, pretty precise scaling relations, just, you know, such that if you find a galaxy of, of a given mass, you can, have, you can make pretty good predictions on some of their other properties, which is insane. Again, what you think about all of the small things that are actually happening within that system. Then the third is that, oh, that Hubble's tuning fork is actually reversed. So uh, what we call late type galaxies now uh, actually form first. And then what we call early type galaxies uh, actually form later. What this means is that the big giant elliptical galaxies that we see are, are, are we think are results of the mergers of these very pretty spiral galaxies that uh, ended up merging over time. And the idea before was that if you have this big spherical blob, you know, at some point it should condense and basically kind of do like, do like what stars do, right? They like kind of rotate. But it turns out that it's, that's the exact opposite. You, have to, you typically have to take spiral galaxies and then, make, and then turn those into big elliptical galaxies. And for me, that's always been a cool fact because um, uh, it just goes to show how much progress we've made, you know, since the first galaxies were discovered, you know. 120, 30 years ago or whatever, what have you. Yeah, the, the late the late type, early type was so confusing when I took when I took the galaxies class. You're you're a TA for that class. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Phil was Phil was explaining it and I was like, I was just so why are why are all astronomers just like backwards with like the way they do notation? <laughs> I'm more used to it. That's now. I know that's one of those things too, where again, it's, it doesn't even matter. Like we can just change it to whatever name we want to now, but it just something stick. You're just like, oh gosh, it's annoying. Definitely. Uh, well, thanks, Evan. That was amazing. We had a really good time talking to you. Really appreciate the time for you to show support to our show. Yo, thank you for having me. Like I said, I really appreciate it. Good to see you again, and nice to meet you as well. Nice meeting and, you um, too. Thank you so much. And I really, I really do like this guy, uh, this platform. I think y'all are doing amazing work yourselves too. I know you guys, you patted me on the back a lot. And I just wanted to say that um, y'all are also doing amazing stuff. And thank y'all for your service and for your work too. So it's all a big team effort. We're all trying our best to do what we can. And, um, you know, as long as we keep on trudging along and, you know, helping each other out on the way up there, I think we'll get to get to where we need to be slowly but surely. Yes. Thanks, Evan. Really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, hopefully I'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you, y'all as well. Thank you.